Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Oxbow Partners is happy to support this episode of Following the Rules. Oxbow Partners is a management consultancy specialising in the insurance industry. In 2022, we were again named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. We help our clients, who include insurers, reinsurers, regulators and investors, with everything from growth strategy to operations, technology and M&A, not to mention the impact of the increasingly complex regulatory environment on their businesses, such as the current FCA General Insurance Pricing Fairness Rules, about which you'll find lots of commentary on our website, oxpopartners.com. If you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, please drop us a line. In the meantime, enjoy this podcast. The trend is not encouraging at the moment. It's a trend that is part of countries wanting to ensure they're not overly reliant on other countries. And these are the things that we're working through. Today's guest reveals how one of the world's largest banks navigates regulatory change. He outlines what his bosses want to know when the UK appoints a new prime minister. And he details what he believes needs to happen to ensure the UK financial markets remain competitive post-Brexit. Richard Kay has spent the past seven of his 26-year career at banking giant JP Morgan, guiding the bank's approach to regulatory change outside the US as its head of international public affairs. Hi Richard, welcome to Following the Rules. Very good to be here. Thank you, Lucy. Nice to see you. So let's start with your role at JP Morgan. Could you tell us a bit more about what led you to the position, what it involves and why it's important? Of course. So they call me Head of International Public Affairs, which is a roving brief across the world. And it's part of our broader corporate responsibility team that is a large group of people around the world who do all the things that make up that definition of corporate responsibility. So we have a government relations team and we have a sustainable finance team and we have our philanthropy and our foundation. And they are all there to ensure that we are representing ourselves and the firm and what we do best to the world. Oh, it includes a policy centre and a think tank as well based on all the data and the intellectual property we have as a firm and trying to think about how we put all of that to good use dealing with the policymakers and the wider world. So the government relations team is federal government relations team in, in Washington, which is dealing with people on Capitol Hill and in the regulators and the different agencies and the administration, and then there's a state government relations team. And then there's an international team, which is the one that I've worked in over all these years, and it's a, a Brussels team and a London team and a Hong Kong team and a Beijing team. However, I've been at the firm a very long time, nearly 26 years actually, and when I started doing this role, there was only one person doing government relations in Washington, and there was no one doing it here. And I was asked to do it. And people in US companies were looking at what they needed to do in Europe. So that's where it all started. So what skills would you say your role requires? Good question. I think trying to see our firm as a bit of an outsider is helpful. So I've been here forever, so you'd say I was absolutely the archetypal insider, but I never have been a banker, I never felt like a banker. I studied theology at university, I was a call scholar. My mind and my head and my ambitions were in a totally different direction. So I've always felt 
while I've been here that I try and see things in a way that someone much cleverer or mathematical than I do that sees things. You, you need to know how to navigate your way around a large institution. I think you have to be able to get on with lots of people and you have to get a lot of people to help you because we're a small team and we need the intellectual engagement and the expertise of people in all the lines of business, people on trading floors or people who are tax experts or people who are accountants and lawyers and aristocrats to look at legislative proposals and tell us what they think and try and work out what we think makes sense for markets and, and how we support the economy. And so I think you have to get the most out of all of that. And I think also importantly in terms of how you deal with the outside world, you need to try and see how the person on the other side of the table sees the world. If you're talking to a policymaker, being a regulator or a minister or, or a regular member of parliament in a different country, they're there to protect their country, the public interest, and they're motivated by their accountability to voters. And so when we as our industry goes along and wants to discuss some policy matter, it's really important that we don't start the discussion from our point of view, we try and see what their point of view is. And usually we all end up in a place where we understand each other. And I think it's also important that people want you to come through the door. We want people to give us a hearing and absolutely that doesn't mean that they're always going to agree. But if you have a decent in relationship with them, then you can discuss and debate things. So what advice would you have for someone looking to follow in your footsteps? I think very big companies now and their relationship with the wider world, wider society are under scrutiny like they've never been. And, and I think someone coming along needs to see it as a huge opportunity and a huge responsibility to be one of the people who helps ensure there's greater rather lesser understanding between companies and policymakers. But also it's way beyond policymakers, it's people, it's society. Here we are in Canary Wharf and looking out at one of the poorest boroughs in Europe, but there's a huge amount of brilliance and intelligence and activity going on in this little Isle of Dogs, but there are also a lot of people here who are thinking about how they engage with younger people out there, people of different ethnic minorities, different socioeconomic backgrounds, and they're trying to think all the time not only about how do we make sure some of those people come and work here, but we're also trying to think about how this sector does what it's meant to do for, for the economy because that everyone benefits. Mm-hmm. Some people might say, well, that's you know, it's, it's a bit cynical, but I think we feel that we have a huge responsibility, as whether it's a bank or any big company, to be as close as we can to the people around us. And we're speaking during a time of political change in the UK. The Prime Minister Boris Johnson has resigned and the ruling Conservative Party is in the midst of trying to find a new leader Mm. and a new PM. I'm interested to know what is required of you during a period like this. What do your bosses want to hear from you at this point? Yes, well, we are a very large firm, some 270,000 people, and we feel that we're a large operation here in the UK and in Europe, 20,000 odd people in the UK and more, of course, across the channel and beyond. But there are head offices in New York and we've got people in Hong Kong and Singapore and all over the world, they want to understand what's happening here without all the extraneous detail. They want to know, well, what does it mean? So Boris Johnson stepped down as leader of the Conservative Party, but why is he still as the Prime Minister? He needs to explain the process and the rules and why it happened and give some ideas as to what might happen. But of course, that's quite hard to fathom. I think people want to hear things like, well, who are the candidates and what are their instincts and interests? And so it's our job to, again, rather like when we were saying you need to think about what the 
person on the other side of the table's thinking and, and needing, well, we need to ensure that when we're communicating what happens here, we make it understandable to someone who doesn't know the system here. And currently the timeline that the Conservative Party is following is that they're scheduled to make a decision as to who their new leader will be in early September. Mm. At that point, to what extent are you expected to have a, a relationship with that individual? How quickly are you expected to engineer that and what's required of you there? Well, I suppose I've never thought about any of that process is about engineering anything. I think if I were a politician and suddenly some person I never met sidles up to me and wants to be my best friend when they never showed an interest up to now, then it wouldn't be very convincing. And that's not how we do things. We come to know some of these characters over the years through the many different ways they engage with people, round table conferences or in the city. And we've come to know people, but we don't go around trying to anticipate who's going to come to power because I think that's also rather cynical. So what we want to do with our team is create an environment where policymakers in Westminster and Whitehall and Brussels and beyond, they know that JP Morgan's going to help answer the questions they have about something. They know that JP Morgan can help them think about the new issues of the world, sustainability or crypto assets or whatever it is. So we just want to be thoughtful, useful, balanced, objective, not self-serving in what we do. But we're not in the process of getting to every party so as we get lots of business cards. Okay. And in that context, obviously the UK has been trying to unpick its rulebook from the EU's. John Glenn, the former city minister, was a key architect of that. Mm. He's now resigned. Interesting to know whether his resignation concerns you, given that he was such an influential sponsor of many of those financial services reforms. But also the package of legislation that was due to pass through Parliament, cementing those reforms into the UK rulebook, has now delayed. We don't know for how long. Mm. To what extent does that all concern you? Well, these are very much things that are top of our entry. I should just say, on John Glenn, I thought he was really an outstanding minister. He was the longest serving economic secretary to Treasury, or minister responsible for the city since the Second World War. He was incredibly good at engaging with people from across the spectrum, from the consumers and end users of financial services to the big firms, be they UK or international. And he was very, very thoughtful about it all and trying to get a good balance and ensure that we not just navigated through Brexit and the post-Brexit reality, but that we were getting ready for the things that will help the UK financial sector be distinctive and continue to be competitive and everything else. So, that having been said, I think that we're very lucky that he has done all that hard work. I'm sure that the new minister, Richard Fuller, will, will, who is himself someone who has experience of, of the sector, will see all of that. Who am I to say? I work in a bank, but it's up to the government to decide what they do with all this work. But as I understand it, it they want to move ahead. And I think the delay is probably a short one. I mean, we're already nearly upon the summer recess. and. So we found nothing was about to be presented anyway, and I think we would have heard ideas. I would like to think that this will all be on track for the autumn. I'm sure a new Chancellor of the Exchequer will want to take a look at it all, but I think there's quite a lot in the proposal, so it's such as we understand, that we would, would stand every reason to carry on. But then we mustn't be complacent, but there's nothing I've heard from any of the candidates that suggests that they don't want to keep going with all of this. Are there any areas that you believe the UK government has proposed something that will be unworkable in practice? 
Well, the UK onshored all the rules from Europe, right? And now they have an opportunity to reshape them to suit the UK. There's been some discussion about some of these MIFID rules and some of the discussion about some of the capital rules. Some of them are they're quite technical. And, but it's a good debate. So it may well be things that they think are, are obvious and helpful and, in fact, may not be as impactful as they'd like them to be. On the other hand, on the positive side, they've already decided that there's this thing called a mandatory buy-in regime, which was part of the central regulation, they've decided that they're going to change that, and so that's good. There is the share trading obligation that the EU had that, that they don't want to do. So there are two slightly technical examples of things they've already decided they want to change. More broadly, though, when we're asked what is it that we think that they should do with this, these inherited rules, a lot of people in the city say, well, listen, don't change anything because we've implemented it all, and if you change things, then we'll be out of sync with the EU and it will make having cross-border transactions harder. Our view is the UK has left the EU, it should absolutely take the opportunity to do what works for the, the UK. But at the same time, we've said, and many others have said, don't change things for the sake of them, change things that really work and are really helpful. I think that is the mindset that they've looked at. And so just in reference to a couple of the technical terms that you just mentioned, the EU's mandatory buying requirements were heavily criticised and actually ultimately postponed by the EU because there were fears that they would negatively impact market liquidity and operational processes, enforcing parties to certain transactions to agree contractual terms for an automatic buying of securities under certain scenarios. And the EU's share trading obligation requires investment firms to ensure that all trades under scope of the rules had to be traded on an EU Venue. I'm interested to know, do you share industry concerns that some proposed reforms would leave the UK rulebook too different from that of the EU's to facilitate interaction going forward? I'm thinking of the concerns around the data reform bill specifically. Yes, it's important to update data rules to reflect the way in which technology and the economy and everything else is developing. So it's entirely the prerogative of the UK to make those changes. But yeah, look, I don't think any of us thinks it's very helpful if we end up putting in jeopardy the UK-EU data agreements. We just have to keep a close eye on all of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in no way complacent. I recognise the political imperative of taking opportunities of Brexit. And we'd be the first people to say you should absolutely take advantage of the opportunities of this. But there needs to be a close lens put on what is proposed to see, well, does it actually improve things or does it actually make relations with the EU harder? All these things have to be looked at. But everyone recognises what the UK sees as its sovereign right to legislate as it sees fit. And it's also not for ministers and parliamentarians to take everything that our sector says. They need to balance out what we think makes sense with what their responsibility is to the whole country. Mm. And I should add, those data agreements that you referenced, they enable the sharing of business critical information. So if those data agreements were to be removed, that could create challenges in terms of sharing information cross-border. Yeah, data globally is a huge concern for all big financial institutions. We don't want ring-fenced data. We don't want every country in the world to demand that we all onshore data. So it's tricky because, on the one hand, we all know and respect the sovereign right of any country to look after what happens in their borders and to protect their consumers, and it's very understandable. At the same time, we do live in this globalised world, and that word is a bit unfashionable in a way, but sometimes when you ring-fence something, it actually makes it harder to run and sound and secure stable companies, whether they be financial or anything else. Global organisations should have very high standards across the organisation, 
and they have economies of scale and they're designed to oversee and control properly everything that happens within them. And so there's always the danger when you carve something out in order to suit one particular jurisdiction that you might make it harder for that company to oversee all of that. As I say, though, that has to be balanced out between what the legitimate needs of a local regulator are. And we deal with these issues all the time. The trend is not encouraging at the moment. It's a trend that is part of past both populism, COVID, and strategic autonomy, countries wanting to ensure they're not overly reliant on other countries. And these are the things that we're working through. Every country's working through them. Mm-hmm. And there has been conversations around on picking the UK's ring fencing rules, which require the largest banks in the UK to separate their retail banking services from their riskier activities, such as investment banking. Mm. I wondered whether or not you had a view on that and what your involvement in shaping thinking on that has been. The government's put out its consultation on that. We've been part of responding to that. With them, I think they've listened quite hard. I'm sure that the UK regime will continue to be balanced, proportionate and responsive and it'll be able to be responsive now in a way that it hadn't been before because it's much more master of its own destiny. It's all part of a broader question that you see about the competitiveness of London. We spent a lot of time contributing to that debate. It was very encouraging that Rishi Sunak raised this whole question and John Glenn's raised it and I have a reason to believe any future incumbent of the Treasury will think about that. Financial services is a really important part of the UK economy and it's a global international financial centre, and it has to think harder about how it preserves that, given that the easy access to the world's largest single market is now changed. But the UK and London and Edinburgh, by the way, and Bournemouth, where we have 4,000 people, are part of a, a huge UK asset, but it's also an asset to Europe, and it's an asset to the world. A vibrant, open, well-regulated, competitive financial marketplace and so we want all of that offering to be robust and the only way that you remain competitive is constantly thinking ahead, constantly innovating and we've seen that the Khalifa review on fintech, the Hill review on listings and the way in which they're already making some of these changes that we've talked about before. So we want the UK to thrive and succeed, we want financial markets to thrive and succeed and we're a big player and so we champion all of that, we would not want it to go backwards, we want it to to go forwards. I think what we will want to see, hopefully when the autumn gets going, when you have a new government in place, is that some of the really good statements we've heard are matched with the detail. Getting these reviews right, getting these laws changed right, thinking about things that sometimes are controversial to think about, tax for example. We're in a cost of living crisis, we have high inflation, people are struggling in their daily lives. So people say, well, banks shouldn't complain about tax. Well, we don't complain about tax, but it is also the duty of people who are in this sector to say, at some point, look, by the way, we're taxed more than other sectors. Is the bank levy that was designed to ensure the right calibration of risk and reward after the financial crisis, does it still fulfill its purpose? What should the levels be? We've seen commitments on the surcharge, very welcome. We see different candidates talking about corporation tax. The UK has to think about all these things in a balanced way, and we think about them in a balanced way. They're not the top thing that we go and talk to people about, but it's legitimate for all of us in this marketplace to to want good regulation, innovative regulation, forward-thinking regulation. Think about visas and immigration and the ease of getting in and out of the country. Think about tax. Think about how do you ensure the rule of law is still very respected. 
How do you balance it out? There are many countries around the world that come to London and look at what's happening here and say, how do we replicate that? So the UK, which has been an example to so many others, needs always to be recalibrating, always looking ahead. And that sometimes is hard when there are all these other political and social priorities. And you mentioned that you'd like UK lawmakers to take a close lens to their regulatory reform project. What specific rules would you like them to position that close lens on? The UK now has the opportunity to set its own rules. But in the past, in all the rules in, in financial services have been decided in Brussels by the Commission proposing them and then amended back and forth between the Council, the Ministers and the members of the European Parliament. And then you had these uh, European supervisory agencies that would come up with the detail and the whole process would take forever. Now, the UK has taken all of that and now wants to change the bits it wants to change. But what is the process by which it's going to do that? So I remember in Brussels 20 years ago, they decided that you can't have ministers and MEPs deciding the fine detail of financial services rules. So they had this process where you give the detailed process making to the what's now called the European Securities Markets Authorities or the European Banking Authority. And the UK can't have MPs debating every single line and, and every regulatory proposal. So I understand, you see, the idea is to give the regulators more leeway. Fine, and we'd probably support that. But at the same time, we also need to understand what's the process of ensuring that the regulators get it right. And that has to go hand in hand with these new objectives being put into the rules of book about competitiveness. And so I think it's important that you see who regulates the regulators. What's the consultation process? How do we ensure that we actually try and marry up the, the objectives of safety and soundness and of oversight of markets and banks with also ensuring that these institutions can do the right thing by the economy? And that's what they're working through. And we've every reason to believe they'll get the balance right. But this is a moment to look at that. Oh, and then in the detail, yes, let's go through these big proposals, MIFID, rules on capital, and see we get them right. There's this notion that we need more transparency in the non-equity markets. We should discuss that. We should ensure that you don't have unintended consequences. You know, what sometimes looks like a sensible rule, transparency is a hard thing to disagree with, isn't it? But actually, if it fragments markets or it makes markets smaller, if it means that, that fewer people operate in them, then you need to, to pause and, uh, and that's why if you have a robust consultation process and then you know, on the whole things are likely to turn out better. So there aren't big things that we think they must and should change straight away. Everything that's on the table at the moment is all in review stage where we may we'll, we'll see more from the UK on taxonomies on ESG. We, we've seen them do a lot of very good stuff at the international stage whether it's you know, these International Sustainability Standards Board or it's this task force for financial disclosure. There's a lot of things where the UK is taking a lead in trying to encourage international coordination and we would completely support that and we want more of that and the UK is setting a good example. Mm-hmm. On the who regulates the regulators, mm. recently there's been talk of greater parliamentary oversight of regulators and last year there was talk of setting up a body that would oversee the regulator. It sounds like you might support that and what would you like well, it to look like? I don't know whether it should prescribe what parliamentarians feel they need to do but is it using the existing treasury committee or is it a new committee i think these are right questions i'm not sure exactly what the answer is but the principle that we certainly would agree with which is that if you're going to give the regulators all these extra powers then there needs to be some accountability it's good for the regulators it's good for parliament it's good for democracy it's good for um, the markets we won't have improved things if we've gone from leaving too much detail to be determined by non-experts to giving 
all the discretion to the experts. You have to find some balance. Mm -hmm. And they did that in Europe, more or less, and they could constantly improve it. But the UK has an opportunity to make a, a quicker, leaner, but as equally or more robust process. And obviously the EU is reviewing its rule books at the same time as the UK is undertaking its own significant regulatory change project. What challenges does that pose both for the firm subject to those rules in question and also for those in a role such as yours? Well, ESG is the top issue for many, many people and the rules about that are developing. And then there's technology and fintech and, and digital assets or digital coins, stable coins, crypto the list is long and so we're now entering a new phase where policymakers want to come up with rules that respond to what's already happening but also policymakers want to take advantage of some of the opportunities that those new developments uh, present. But what I would say, the reason why rules on the green finance, sustainability, disclosure, reporting standards are really very much the, the top of our minds at the moment is this. After the financial crisis, the G20 leaders, the, these 20 most powerful countries in the world, who'd never really met quite in that format before, got round the table and said, we must ensure that we don't ever have another financial crisis. So it was quite an extraordinary thing. They met and they decided rules, broad principles on capital and banks and derivatives and markets. And then everyone went home and they came up with all of the rules on that. And then we all tried to work out means by which they could basically hang together across different borders. Now, what strikes me, you see, is that this time around there's been no G20 on ESG standards. And in fact, the G20 probably struggled to agree on all that for reasons we know. So now we're trying to come up with comparable rules on disclosure and taxonomy and many other things but everyone's doing it without having had some broadly agreed set of political principles so that's complicated and making sure that what the EU does somehow coheres with what the US does what the UK does and not forgetting the very important part of the world Asia I mean that's complicated. To what extent can you as a firm facilitate those discussions that international cohesion? Well we always have to recognize our place so yes we're a very large financial institution across many markets and jurisdictions but we would never dare to say we can help the official sector facilitate things but what we would do want to do is bring the experience that we have of not only working across all these borders but having clients in all these different jurisdictions and i think we're really looking for is comparability and cohesion and coherence and that they don't conflict significantly and what we do want to happen is that the EU aligns some of their standards, reporting standards, disclosure, the climate risk, with other jurisdictions. The UK is going to come out with proposals on its taxonomy, I think, in the third or fourth quarter this year. And we think they'll hopefully be able to reflect what they've seen in other places and do what's right for this jurisdiction. This International Sustainability Standards Board that, that came out of the stable of the ISB, but based in Frankfurt, it's a very positive development, but then Chancellor Rishi Sunak announced it in Glasgow at COP26, and that is to encourage more global convergence around sustainability reporting standards. And that the idea is that that helps you reduce fragmentation and the proliferation of all these different reporting standards. So that's the, the glass half full. There is also the possibility that it, it doesn't work. Some people who are knowledgeable in Washington would say that even though you know, the regulatory proposals coming out there are an attempt to, for the US to, to play the role appropriate to its weight in all of this, but not agrees with all of it, and you have to look at what the political context might be post-November. So it's not going to be a straight line there, and it's obviously 
important that what the US does is not a million miles away from what parts of the world are doing. And then also let's not forget Asia, where it's an enormous region, widely varying economic levels of development and markets. So we collectively have a big job to do. And that work will need the financial sector involved with the policymakers. Your role is obviously international and focused. What's topping your to-do list with the exclusion of the UK and EU? The world of ESG is very very high up there in trying to ensure we play a helpful role in that data and not having balkanised, fragmented rules there, I think it's important. And we're all focused on, do we want a central bank digital currency? What do we think of crypto assets? And what is their legitimate role in markets? Are they a good thing or not? Do they disintermediate traditional banks and central banks? Is there a purpose for them? What is the use case? That is all really another whole topic and it has some of the same challenges we were just talking about in respect of sustainability rules and where do we start from where are we going and then and how does that whole new world relate to the older world how do big financial institutions adopt and grasp these new currencies or do they shy away from them well we've got to work together to come up with something which is going to not create some new future problem it should be some future solution. Mm -hmm. So in reference to the need for alignment of financial services rules, you've mentioned ESG, you've mentioned cryptocurrencies, are there any other areas that you think specifically need that alignment? Well, taking a very big high-level picture, the six years since Brexit has got us to a point where most financial institutions know what they're doing and what they've had to do, where they've had to move. And we now need to ensure that we're looking forward, not behind. And I mentioned Brexit just because it's raised to this bigger point that we have to keep remembering that these markets, these banks, are there to support the wider economy. And we want the pie to get bigger. What we don't want is the pie to stay the same size and the parts divided up in a different way. And so as countries and sovereigns respond to COVID, and the notion that they shouldn't be reliant on external factors or external countries or providers. We have to get the balance right. So what am I saying? Let's ensure that we put the financial sector in a position to play an incredibly important role of helping rebuild the economy post-COVID. And in the situation we're in now, where we have high inflation, we have a war in Europe, where we have lower growth, we need to ensure that you have financial markets and banks able to do really important work. So let's try and minimise the fragmentation, minimise the the friction, and get as much cooperation as possible. Those are the things that that we think about. You can see how it would be a challenging role yours, because... You could have very strong views as to how you would like things to develop, but I can imagine you've really got to be very careful about how you voice those at risk of being seen to be too heavy-handed and trying to influence rules in a mm-hmm. specific way. How do you navigate that? Well, I hope that in any team that I've worked with or managed, that no one has ever gone to any policymaker at any level and said, please do this because it's good for J.P. Morgan. We just don't do that because it's just irresponsible. The tone of is set from our chairman. He doesn't go off to foreign countries and say, please give me a license for this. He goes and talks about the development of their markets and their economy. He doesn't go to Capitol Hill and say, I want this, it's good for us. That tone is set through the firm, and that absolutely is what we do every day. We want to go and talk about what we think is good for the markets, good for the economy. Now, people may disagree with us, so 
it's challenging, but if you have integrity about it and if you're constantly objective, and we don't go and talk to people about things that are on our mind until we've done a very thorough process of ensuring that's something that we all agree with. We have lots of different lines of business in our firm. We have an asset management business. We really stress test the issues we talk about. And it's not just about fixing problems that are right on the horizon. One of the reasons that we we have this an institute and our policy center is because we have all this data and all this experience and this knowledge from being in 48 states of the US and a commercial bank and a retail bank to being one of the largest investment banks in the world and have been in some of these countries for 150 years or more. We want to use that information and data in a way that is helpful for others. So when we go and talk to a government, we want to bring the whole of the firm to bear. It's not just about our issues. It's about, yes, what we see as the economic trends, what we see as the regulatory challenges, the need for coordination, but also what we're doing in communities, what we're doing for young people, what we're doing for gender diversity, ethnic diversity, creating new jobs, training skills, and we're doing that here in Tower Hamlets. So we want to go and not show off, but we want to say, this is the work we're doing, this is what we're thinking, and we also go and say, these are our thoughts on cryptocurrencies, or these are some of the things we think you should think about in the financial market. So it's a whole array of issues. It's not saying Article 3.21, please change this line because that suits us. I don't see how any companies in the modern world we're in can be effective if they're not constantly thoughtful about the context in which they're operating. Lastly, what is one upcoming or current challenge that you believe not enough people are paying attention to currently? We need to be on top of cyber risks and we need to be insured on top of climate risks and we need to spend a lot of money on them. We spend an enormous amount of money every year on cyber security and other institutions may not be able to do that so much and the system is always let down by the weakest link. So those are the things we think about. When I think about the, the people the, the intellectual property, the, the re- range depth of clients we have. We've actually a huge amount to offer on the things that the whole planet needs fixing. And it's a duty and responsibility to ensure that we, we help the transition of the global economy to something which is more sustainable. And so we want to ensure that governments and regulators allow us to do that. We have to keep the lights on, but we have to make real visible change and we have to do it relatively fast. But at the same time, we've got to do it in a way that doesn't make those who are already vulnerable more vulnerable. And we have to be part of that discussion. Everyone in the firm needs to think about all these things all the time. This is a shared aim. No one in this bank gets out of bed in the morning thinking that they can just do their little thing and go home. They take their responsibilities here in this very large institution very seriously. That's all we have to do every day. Well, we've covered a lot of ground today, so thank you very much for taking the time to run through it. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.